most common mistake athletes make is they go too hard on their easy days and too easy on their hard days. Um, basically, you know, it, it goes back to that, that management of fatigue that uh, you, you get very different benefits out of intense training than you do out of high volume training. Mm. So what you want to do is um, you, you don't want your high volume training to interfere with your intense training because, you know, what people will do is, is they'll say, you know, I know it's an easy day today, but I, um, I feel like I got something in the tank. I'm going to go a little bit harder, a little bit faster than I was planning. And then the next day you, you carry over some of that fatigue. And instead of being able to get to, you know, 95% of your peak, you only get to 80% of your peak and you don't get those really rich benefits that come from small volume, high intensity training. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with stress. What I'm looking for here is the answer to the question, what is the connection between stress and creativity? What role does stress play in the creative process? How do creative people work with stress, and how do they manage it on their day-to-day lives? What I mean by creativity isn't exactly art, although, although that does include that. What I'm looking for is anybody who is in the active process of creation every day, whether that's starting a company, whether it's creating a great piece of artwork, or whether it's just having a conversation, creating a conversation with another person. Uh, I do look for influential pieces of creative work. Uh, And today I interviewed Jeff Berkovici. He is the uh, SF Bureau Chief for Inc. and the author of Play On, The New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age. Jeff has some really interesting things to say about how athletes are older and older and reaching their peak peaks at later times in their careers. Uh, there's a lot of science that goes beh- on behind this, and he digs deeply in his book about the science behind why elite athletes are extending their careers longer and longer. One of the most interesting things that he shares, though, is that a lot of it doesn't have to do with fancy equipment. Um, it actually has to do with very simple things that they do in their everyday lives, eating well, getting enough rest. And that's really the most important thing that I found from interviewing him was that basically rest is a huge important process for these elite athletes. Knowing when to take a rest and resting completely in that period of rest, not in this kind of middle ground of like, oh, I'm working out and then I'm resting and stuff. It's pure rest. Uh, I think there's a lot of valuable wisdom in here and I hope you can listen to the whole thing. Uh, If you like what I'm offering here, please go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Give us a review if you like it. I uh, hope you have a great day. Bye. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm Jeff Berkovici. I'm the, uh, I'm the San Francisco Bureau Chief at, at Inc. Magazine, um, where I, I write about uh, technology and startups. And I'm also the author of uh, Play On, mm-hmm. uh, The New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age. It's a book that uh, it's about this longevity revolution that we're seeing in the sports world and how sports science, uh, advances in sports science are helping to extend the careers of elite athletes who are um, competing at a higher level at a later age than we've ever seen before. People like um, you know Roger Federer and Serena Williams and LeBron James and Tom Brady and the list goes on and on. Hmm. And what, what uh, brought you to write such a book or research it? Mm-hmm. So I have, um, I've always covered sports Sports and science, both as part of my, you know, they're sort of adjacent uh, areas to what I've what I've written about as a journalist. Um, when, and I've always been kind of a, you know, an amateur recreational athlete. I've never been a, been a high level, you know, competitive athlete, but it's always been a big part of my life. 
in uh, in my mid thirties, I started playing soccer um, with a with you know just sort of a, a rec league team in in when I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and I got obsessed with it. I really loved playing soccer, and um, it became a huge part of my life. I was playing you know two three times a week, and I was going to like soccer clinics and mm-hmm. you know working out really hard to get in shape for it. But my body just I it could not hold up. I was getting constant injuries. And um, I ended up getting this really serious, rare back injury that I had to have emergency back surgery for. Um, so it was kind of the first time that I that I really became aware of um, what it means to age as an athlete to try to you know be be a, any kind of competitive athlete when you're when you're past thirty. Um, but at the same time as this was happening to me personally, I was seeing this phenomenon that I just talked about. You know, where as a sports fan, I was hearing more and more about how you know, you know, this person is, is setting record, you know, is winning tennis majors at a time, you know, at an age when no one's ever won them before, you know, you know, this is happening over here. And you would hear these athletes talking about, um, what they thought was responsible for, for their unprecedented longevity, whether it was a a specific diet that they were doing, a new training regimen, you know, some new, um, biological therapy that they were getting, uh, so I just got, I, I got interested, I mean, both as a journalist, you know, I always love to, um, to sort of, uh, look for, for hype and BS, but mm-hmm. then as a, as a, a person, I wanted to know, like if any of this stuff is real, if any of it actually has real science behind it and that, that might help someone like me either now or in the future when it filters down to the consumer level, I wanted to know about it. So that's how I started researching it. Mm. And what has been the effect on your own, like fitness or exercise? Has it, has it, have you noticed a huge impact on your on your um, own fitness regimen, like taking in all the science and and making it part of your practice? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm 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 not uh, you know lying on the couch after back surgery anymore, so that's a big plus. <laughs> uh-huh. um, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, what I've what I've learned. I think has um, totally trans. I mean, everything everything that I do now is driven by what I've learned doing the book. You know, I'm still not I'm I'm not a uh, I'm not, I'm still not a higher high level athlete in any way. And I, and I never will be. And you know, now I kind of understand some of the reasons for why I'm not a little better than I did when I started, but, um, it, there, there are a number of lenses. So what I, um, what I do in the book, it's not, it's not such a prescriptive book per se in that it doesn't have, you know, kind of lists like bullet points at the end of chapters where I say, do this, do this, do this. But I, what I try to do is give a set of, um, lenses or frameworks for understanding different areas of, of science that you can apply to yourself. So like a really, a really big one for me is um, thinking, about, thinking about fitness in terms, of, um, in terms of stability and mobility, which are two concepts that you hear all the time. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure that you're used to thinking in terms of stability and mobility, but I, as an athlete, you know, I thought, oh, I need to be faster, mm. I need to be stronger. Like I'm getting these injuries because I'm not, I'm not you know, fast enough and strong enough. Now I never think anymore about, you know, how much weight can I lift? How much, you know, how, how much can I stretch? I think, I think am I mobile enough to do this, to do the movements I need to do? And am I stable mm-hmm. enough and, and understand the relationship of those two things that you, you know, you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've got to that understanding through talking to, um, basically through, 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 um, interviews and, uh, and, and going through the process at a number of companies that are working with movement science to help model the movements of athletes and um, detect the, the patterns in their movement that are likely to cause, uh, that are likely to cause them injuries in the future and then help them um, 
you know, retrain their movements so they avoid those injuries. Mm. Yeah, that's the really interesting thing that's been happening in the yoga world recently is now it's gone from this kind of like spiritual woo-woo type of thing to now much more f- uh, found, uh, uh, foundational in, in evidence and stuff like that. And so a lot of the most famous yoga teachers are now physical therapists who have become yoga teachers. And it's all like very like biomechanical. And a lot of what they talk about is uh, uh, strength in mobility. So that if you have, if you're, you know, if your arms way back here, way behind you, and then if you have strength in that thing, that's what you want to look for is the strength in that mobility as well. Yeah, that's, that's the concept in this, um, you know, you know uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but Kihara, mm-hmm. this uh, Kihara resistance stretching. No. Um, it's something that um, Yaramir Yager, the, uh, the hockey player who's like 46 does, um, and um, Dara Torres was doing it when she, won, when she uh, won her Olympic medals when she was 40. That's, it's the exact same thing. It's the idea is that you should have any part of your range of motion you're likely to find yourself in, you should be, you should be equally strong in that part of your range of motion. Interesting. Um, so, so mobility and stability were concepts that completely changed. Um, like my New Year's resolution this year is do mobility work every day because I'm, mm. I'm the kind of athlete who tends to get a lot of mobility limitations. Uh-huh. Um, another one is fatigue. Um, just thinking about it, one of the chapters of the book is, is uh, you know, fresh is the new fit. Hmm. And I really think that it's a more sophisticated understanding of uh, the impact of fatigue, the importance of managing your fatigue in your program that I think that that is probably the number one factor for, for most, if not all of these athletes that has um, helped them help them play longer, especially in sports like, like basketball or soccer, where they just did not understand at all how to um, periodize for performance at a, in, in their sports like 15 years ago. Huh. Um, so, you know, that, that, that was the, I, like, I was thinking in terms of fitness, 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 I need more fitness, but it's really that interplay of fitness and freshness that, um, that determines your performance and your health. And that seems so contrary to a lot of what, what I was taught when I was younger is just like, you got to, to be an athlete, you got to go all the time. You got to go and there's no, there's no chance for rest. That's just weakness leaving the body and like all that stuff. And now it's like, and now it seems to be uh, that understanding is changing. Even as I'm reading your book, that it's changing among the elite athletes as well. Like they used to think that now they're, now they're kind of changing that perspective. I, I think they've gotten so much smarter about it. And I think that the, um, the, the, them getting smarter about it and really internalizing that understanding is driving a lot of the secondary stuff we see, like the the obsession with uh, with recovery techniques, which you know is mostly is mostly like healthy and productive, but it's also to be frank, there's a lot of overkill there, and there's a lot of you know mm. a, a lot of pseudoscience there. Mm. But I think what you're seeing is these athletes who you know, they want to just work, 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 work. They will do anything to succeed. But now they understand if I spend eight hours in the gym today, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to have a negative effect on my performance tomorrow. So, you know, what do I do after, after finishing my very focused, high quality 90 minute workout? What do I do with the rest of my day? Well, you know, now I'm going to go ice tub and I'm going to east him and I'm going to do like all of these other things. Huh. One of the questions that came up in my, uh, after I was reading, the book uh, is so I feel like meditation is a, essentially it is like re, uh, it's intentional recovery. Um, so you you kind of basically just go into yourself and you you uh, uh, find peace of mind. And I'm not really explaining that well, but basically you focus on an object of meditation and just having that one thing that you're consciously aware of 
uh, for like 20 minutes a day, it feels like it's recovery. So one of the questions I asked, uh, I wanted to ask is like, do you think that meditation or these kind of like intentional rest things can make your recovery period shorter? Did you find any evidence in that? In, um, that meditate. Well, uh, I, I found evidence that, um, that recovery, uh, there's, so, uh, there was some, there was a, a one study that I, I read about that, um, that looked at how, how important it is to, um, flip a mental switch after your performance so that you're not replaying your performance in the head. Mm. And they found that a, a number of things that would be, could be useful in flipping that mental switch, including, I think that this study specifically looked at video games. A lot of athletes like to play video games after the, you know, afterwards. And they found even something like video games, just as long as you are not sitting there the rest of the day, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, what did I do wrong dissecting your performance? You're, you know, you're subjecting your body, your body is, hmm. is modeling, is modeling that performance and, you know, undergoing a lot of the physiological, um, the same kind of physiological cycles as you would be if you were still on the field. So in that sense, um, meditation, I'm sure it's higher quality than video games for, hmm. for starting your recovery process. Hmm. When you ask if it speeds up your recovery, what I think it does, so it builds that mental muscle that allows you to flip that switch. Uh, That's what it really is about. It's yeah. meditation. Meditation is strengthening your letting go muscles, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the faster an athlete, I mean, when they, they talk about, you know, how, how great athletes have to have short memories for, for their mistakes. Hmm. Um, you know, they, and, and, uh, the chapter, uh, on psychology, you know, a lot of it's about, um, not being results oriented, being process oriented rather than results oriented. A lot of which is, you know, also about being able to, whether you succeeded or failed, being able to let that go, you know, as soon as it happens yeah. and, and start preparing for the next thing. And they can really do this to a degree that's freakish. I mean, you know, if you miss a free throw in, in the big game, you still have another free throw to take. You need to be able to let that go immediately. So mm. I think for a lot of athletes, it's that letting go muscle that either allows them to, you know, um, to, to stay where they need to be mentally during a performance, but then also allows them to, to completely leave that performance in the past as soon as it is in the past. Mm. And that's crucial to be, being able to begin, you know, mental and physical recovery. And that's actually a really good description of meditation, especially which my teacher talks a lot is basically, uh, you know, you have this object of meditation, but the, the current moment is constantly shifting. And so like the sounds that are happening right now will change. And then so keeping touch with, in touch with reality over and over and over again. And so being able to let go of what had happened, you know, in the past five to 10 seconds and like being like, oh, this is a new thing that I'm in right now. Um, that's really cool. Did you, t did you happen? I know this wasn't the, the subject of your book. Did you happen to talk to any of the athletes about their meditation practices at all? I definitely talked to a couple sports psychologists about how they use meditation um, in their programs. Did I talk to any athletes who, who brought up meditation to me? Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've heard that Steph Curry is into meditation now, particularly in terms of like float tanks and stuff like that. Yeah, I've, I've been to, uh, I don't know if he goes to, I, 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 know, I know which one he goes, he goes to Reboot, I think, uh -huh. uh, yeah. that I had read that he goes to Reboot. And I've, I've, I've done the float tank at Reboot, uh -huh. um, just out of, out of curiosity about that. Uh -huh. What do you do every day as part of your like fitness routine? Um, I'm a, I'm a cyclist. I, I, I ride, uh, you know, I ride two or three times a week. Um, I run and then I do some, because I've had so many injuries. I, I do a lot, a lot of my fitness routine is, is basically like rehab stuff from the okay. past that I've, uh -huh. that I've kept. Yeah. Mobility stuff, core stuff. Um, you know, a lot of like body weight and like bands. Hmm. 
Um, and uh, so I want to talk a little bit about stress and like, as you're writing this book, what were the kind of biggest mental blocks that you faced uh, that brought you the most stress and how did you get through them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I have a mental block. Um, so I, 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 my, the thing that I recognized about myself, I, I, a couple of them, um, one of which is, um, I'm one of those, like, I'm one of those work procrastinators. Like I'm one of those people who, because writing the book is something that I really cared about and I didn't want to do it wrong. <laughs> I can, I, I will procrastinate by doing all of the other types of work that I have to do uh -huh. and leave the book for the last thing. Because, you know, if, if you have a dilemma, if you're like, I don't know if I want to write, you know, if I don't, I don't know if I want to make this the lead or this the lead, or, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, okay, well, I, you know, I have a house to clean and I have a article to finish and I have, so, um, that was a big one, just forcing myself to sit down and do the work and trade, you know, trade the perfect potential of what could be for the, you know, the rough reality of, 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 of a finished work. Uh. Um, that's a mental block. I also have, um, I, I have a mental block on, I, I, sh I mean, one, I don't know if there's a mental block, but, but a thing that I learned from this book, uh, is that, uh, it's important to show things to people. It's important to solicit crit uh, criticism. I like, mm. I really, um, Mm. As a writer, I hate showing unfinished work to people. It's something I've, I've never, you know, I've never done willingly. And I just realized when it's something with a book where you're working on it for so long, you need to be showing it to people as you go. Just doing it at the very end, you're not getting the full benefit of that. Mm. And, and as a journalist, I imagine that you probably don't have too many, like, hangups about asking people for their time or asking people for, for, for an interview and stuff like that. Do, is that an issue for you or, or is it something that used to be an issue or now is really easy? Um, it's definitely something that used to be an issue because I'm one of those people who came to journalism more from, um, from writing more as a writer than as a reporter. I'm, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, um, I've learned, you know, to, I, I, I pretty quickly learned to be a reporter and I love doing it, but, um, yeah, I'm, I've got a little bit too much Midwestern politeness to me where, you know, if, if I ask somebody for their time, I mean, the great, great, great reporters are people who don't take no for an answer. They're, they're not afraid to make people uncomfortable. You know, I'm somebody who, you know, if I ask somebody for their time and they say, well, I'm really busy today, I can give you 20 minutes. I'll, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a little too inclined to be like, oh, okay, that's great. 20 minutes. Uh -huh. you know, a, a great reporter would be like, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to need all, I'm going to need all of today and all of tomorrow too. Interesting. Uh, was there anybody who you interviewed who you had or talked to who you had kind of like an outsized, were you talking to mostly sports psychologists and the trainers or were you talking to athletes as well? I talked to a lot of athletes. I talked to a lot of, um, coaches and, you know, perform people on their performance teams and a lot of sports scientists and psychologists. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of the athletes, the athlete interviews and, um, some of them I got a ton out of, um, I found in general, um, I, I came away with the feeling that the most interesting stuff in the book tended to come from the people around them just because it's not the athlete, it's the athlete's job to perform, you know, it's not their job to, mm. to, um, to think about to necessarily to, 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 um, think about the underlying frameworks of what allows them to perform, you know, they, they, they pay the people around them to, to make them better. Mm. And then, uh, so I found that the, the people around them tended to have the most interesting insights. Mm. And what was the 
biggest insight that you got from um, I don't know one of the what what's the what's the thing what's the if you were to mention one thing from the book that most positively impacted your life what was that one framework or uh, or technique or kind of like switch. Um, yeah. Um, so there was a guy named Trent Stellingworth that I talked to who he's a, um, he's a sports scientist in Canada and he coaches a lot of their Olympic athletes, including, um, at the time I talked to him, he, one of his, one of his people he was coaching was his wife who was, um, a middle distance runner, um, who competed down at Rio. Um, and the, the Stellingworths were just awesome. He was so, he's, he's brilliant and so, you know, generous with his time. And he just, he really like, he, um, it's, it's a mission for him that, that he thinks that older athletes have, um, are written off too quickly and have a lot more in them than, you know, that, than people appreciate. So he was, he was just like, he cared about this book, you know, about this project as much as I did in ways. Um, and the piece of advice that he gave me that I, that, um, I think is one of the smartest things I heard in the entire time I was running the, writing this, which is, um, he said, people go at the most common mistake athletes make is they go too hard on their easy days and too easy on their hard days. Um, basically, you know, it, it goes back to that, that management of fatigue that, uh, you, you get very different benefits out of intense training than you do out of high volume training. Mm. So what you want to do is, um, you, you don't want your high volume training to interfere with your intense training because, you know, what people will do is, is they'll say, you know, I know it's an easy day today, but I, um, I feel like I got something in the tank. I'm going to go a little bit harder, a little bit faster than I was planning. And then the next day you, you carry over some of that fatigue. And instead of being able to get to, you know, 95% of your peak, you only get to 80% of your peak and you don't get those really rich benefits that come from small volume, high intensity training. Mm. Um, so I think about that all the time, you know, mm. trying to trying to stay out of that mushy middle where you're not really raising your ceiling and you're not really raising your floor. You're just kind of playing around in that mushy middle. I think it's true in, you know, it's this like, it's this sprint recover rhythm that um, I think for almost everybody is, is the best way to work. It's the best way to work out. You know, it's the best way to live. Mm. Like when you're, when you're resting, really rest, when you're working, really work, don't just kind of you know, fart around in the middle. Uh, so that's, it's an interesting thing. I, so uh, since I started reading your book and I talked with Keith a couple weeks ago uh, and we talked about high intensity interval training, I've now brought it, but I'd done it a couple times before, but now I brought it into my routine. And so now I've been, I've been trying to do it every morning or every day, uh, basically five to 10 minutes of really high intensity sprints and then a recovery period in between those, those sprints. Um, and I'm, I'm noticing that in the recovery period as well, my um it's not only recovery from the physical part but it feels like it's recovery from the mental part as well and it and it like you know i have all these other things that i want to do this podcast uh, i'm teaching yoga i'm trying to reach out to a lot of different people um but i find myself not able to do those things as a part of the recovery as well it's like it's a full-on recovery so it's like not only a physical recovery it's a mental recovery um have you found anything like that before i I think i know what you're saying you're you're saying that um i mean it you're saying you can't think of anything else. Like it's, it's, it, it becomes the singular thing in your consciousness. It's, it's draining. So it's like, so like me getting myself to that intensity uh, for the, for those five to 10 minutes is not only draining on a physical level. Like I have to just like lie down for, for a couple hours afterwards, but also on a mental, like the f- mental work also takes it I need to rest from mental work as well. 
Um, yeah, I, uh, I think, I think I, so you, you're saying that, that after you do this workout that, that you, you can't get any productive work done for the yeah, next couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, all of this stuff about, um, about like decision fatigue and, and, um, uh, you know, you sort of, uh, the central governor theory of, uh, of, of executive function. I mean, there, there's definitely, uh, a decent amount of research that that suggests that that depleting yourself physically um, decreases your amount of mental energy you have for for you know tasks that require willpower or executive function um, for the rest of the day. So um, that might be where you're experiencing. <laughs> cool. I mean, I, um, I I I thought that for a minute I thought that you were driving at this idea that um, I mean, what I love about about really high intensity exercise like that. I mean, and, and for me, I've experienced this playing soccer and, and um, cycling uh. is when you get into that place where you're just uh, in the pain cave. And, and mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if this is a cycling term, but, but, but they talk about being in the pain cave mm -hmm. where you're just like, like for five minutes, it's just, it's just you and your body and your legs and your breath. You know, when you're trying to set a new PR on that climb and when you get out on the other side of it, it's like, wow, where was I? You know, you, you, you uh, get into that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you'd call it a, I don't know if you'd call it a flow state, but it is mm -hmm. kind of like really high quality meditation mm. that the world just falls away. Mm. And to That's, me, I find that refreshing. Uh -huh. And for me, I get that when I play basketball and I get that when I play soccer, but it's much harder to replicate that when I'm on my own. And I'm just like trying to get to that 95% high intensity, like, so much harder for me to just do it on my own. I don't know. Um, but it seems like uh, now that I've been doing it for a week, it seems like it's getting a lot easier and more flow like. Um, so you mostly do high intensity interval training through bicycling, basically. Um, in, in the last couple of years, since I've, since I've gotten into cycling, that's, that's usually where my, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm getting my heart up to the, to the very top through that and, and, and through some running. Yeah. And so the heart rate, how does heart rate come into high intensity interval training? Um, well, it, for me, I mean, it's just a rough measure. There's, there's different ways to, you know, assuming you're not hooking yourself up to a, a, a mask that's, you know, measuring your, your, uh, your VO, you know, your, your oxygen consumption. Um, for me, it's just the best proxy for, for, uh, intensity. If I'm, if I'm going to, uh, um, you know, like, a, like zone four, zone five, um, that, that's what I'm looking at. Hmm. And so moving forward, like, uh, what do you see yourself? What's your next project or like, <laughs> um, I've got some projects I'm doing right now. I'm right now. I'm just enjoying not working on a book because I I've, you know, I, it's been a while since I've had time to just like pitch, uh, free freelance stories. So I like, I just did a weird little thing for the wall street journal that was about, um, uh, consumerist doomsday prepping. Um, I'm, I'm pitching a lot of, fun stories. I do have a second book idea I'd like to do. It's, it's not, it's sort of a, in, in some ways it's a continuation of the first one, but you know, um, sort of picks up where the last book left off and runs in a different direction. Uh, I don't know if it'll, I don't know how soon it might become a reality or if it ever will become a reality, but it's a, it's an idea I'm, I'm interested in. Mm. And what's the most stressful part about, I mean, we could talk about it a little bit, but what's the most stressful part about creative work for you? Um, I, I mean, huh. I love the work I do. Um, and I don't really find it. Um, I mean, I'll be honest when I, when I was on book leave, uh, I took, so I took, uh, I took a month of book leave to, to report this book. 
uh, and I took another month of book leave uh, of leave to uh, to do you know as much of the writing as I could, um, which wasn't enough, and I had to do a lot of nights and weekends. So, I, I guess I would say it's finding the space in my life to 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 have because I'm someone who really doesn't work well if I don't have balance in my life. I like I can't just do one thing. I, I do not understand the people who write on nights and weekends, mm. you know, write all day and then write on, on nights and weekends. I can't do it. I, I burn out really fast. Mm. So, um, but when I have the space in my life to say, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, six to eight hours at my desk working on a book. And then I also have the space to be with my family and to you know, ride my bike. Um, I've never been happier. Like I was at my, mm. uh, just like I, I, I looked at my like my Fitbit, my like I looked at my like resting heart rate on my Fitbit at the end of the month that I was on book leave, and I was like, holy crap, my heart rate has been like forty seven. Huh. Like, I've never been more relaxed in my life. <laughs> Amazing, wow. I, I love it. Writing a book is fun. Uh huh. And now that you're in this other stage of the, of book writing, the more publicizing and marketing, are you taking a lot of that on, or do you have like somebody helping you with that? Um. I, you have to take a lot of it on when you're, okay. when you're doing, I mean, when you're doing a book now, um, you know, unless you're, uh, a very famous author, mm. you're, you're a lot, they, they expect you to do a lot of it yourself. Um, mm. I'm fortunate that my, um, my wife is, works in book marketing and publicity. So she's been very, <laughs> she's done a lot of the work too. Uh, 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 is it stressful? Is that part stressful for you? Or? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a lot more stressful actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was actually quite shocked. Um, because I enjoy, I mean, I enjoy stuff like this. I enjoy, you know, talking about the book. I enjoy doing um, like public appearances and stuff. I was shocked by how much I did not enjoy the week of the book launch. It mm. was, it was just stress and and not. I, I I'm happier now that I'm farther away from the launch. The week it came out, it was too much attention. I did not enjoy it. Yep. And what is that? What is that week consist of? Like just lot of meetings or going to bookstores or, um, um, it was a, just a blizzard of radio interviews, uh, yeah. a blizzard of radio interviews and then a couple of events too. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so we got about five minutes left. What is kind of like one thing that you want people to get, take away from your book that gets the most excited about reading it? Um, I, you know, I think it's that, uh, I went into this book thinking that, uh, you know, I knew something was something was working for uh, these these world famous athletes that was helping them stay healthier, and I I thought that I was going to find out that they had access to all of this um, futuristic science and medicine that was that was helping them, and that over the course of time this stuff would filter down to the level where it becomes available to you know to the rest of us as, as happens with new innovations. What I found, my sense when I finished the book was that um, the stuff that's really making the biggest difference for these athletes is the stuff that's the most broadly available and mm. free. You know, it's mm. it's uh, it's taking a different approach to uh, your fitness training. It's you know taking a different approach to your movement. It's um, you know it's prioritizing things like sleep and, and eating for recovery. But it's not stuff that you need to be um, a millionaire athlete to to bring into your life. So I think it's, I think it's the accessibility of it that, that people should really be excited about. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Cause it's like, it's, it's simple. It's the simplicity of, of like every, it, the most of the most effective wisdom is very simple wisdom, like eat right, go to sleep, you know, like manage stress. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's very easy to sell stuff. You know, I mean, if you look at, at Tom Brady and LeBron James, it's very easy to use them to sell stuff. You know, you say, oh, I need to be going to a cryo, you know, I need to be paying for cryotherapy because it works so well for LeBron. I need to, you know, spend 200 bucks for Tom Brady's cookbook. Mm. But it's not, you, you don't need to do that. Like, that's not why they are who they are. Uh-huh, interesting. And, and that's also not why they've lasted. I mean, I think that we are... Um, the other thing is, so we're seeing this amazing generation of athletes who are the best in the best probably who have ever played their sport and they're playing it at an age when, and they're doing it at an age when nobody's ever done it. Right. Well, what makes Tom, what makes them remarkable, what makes Brady Brady and LeBron LeBron is, and Serena Serena is that they are the best. Like that's why we're talking about them because the idea of people being at their best when they're 35 or 40 it's going to become commonplace. We're mm. not, not going to be shocked by that part of it anymore. And it's because, you know, these, as you get old, as you get older and, and, you know, smarter and um, more experienced, these huge psychological and tactical advantages accrue to you. And in the past, the problem is that your physical decline cancels out the, um, the psychological and emotional and cognitive advantages now that the physical decline is being managed so much better, we're seeing those advantages like of, of experience mm. really expressed in performance in a way we've never seen before. So it's going to become the norm that mm. people peak in their careers at 35 or 40. And that's mm. really exciting too. Mm. And that's, that brings in an interesting thing maybe to finish, but like, cause you're in technology and you're in, in kind of the startup world as well. And in the startup world, there's this kind of sense of like the twenties through your thirties, that's when you, are the most effective and then and it kind of peters out unless you've made a huge name for yourself like it becomes harder and harder to get jobs and everything as you get older what do you think about that in the in the tech world do you think there might be a realization that as you get older you might have some more wisdom that you might be able to share and that might make you more effective as a as a worker or? I, you know i think it's I, uh, yeah i mean absolutely you have more wisdom um i think that there's a natural cycle in the tech world, like I, I don't think that that idea that you have something special to bring when you're in your 20s and 30s is, I don't think it's pure ageism. I think we're all at a different place in our lives, you know, when we're young than, than when we get older and, and you know, have, you have different priorities. I mean, in journalism, for instance, it's very normal, and this was certainly the case with me, that when you're in your 20s, you know, you'll do anything for a scoop, you know, you'll do anything to get that next job, and, um, you know, and then, as you kind of get in your thirties and forties, you, you have a little more structure around you in your life. You know, you're not necessarily the person who, when someone says, Hey, can anyone fly to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. can anyone fly to Florida to cover this hurricane? You're not necessarily the one who's saying, I'll jump on the plane. Mm -hmm. because you have, you know, a kid or whatever, a, a book do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're looking for that 25 year old who doesn't have any attachments and who just, you know, would love to be the one on that plane. I think mm -hmm. we see that in the startup world um, where, you know, a lot of the time when, when you're 25, you, the idea of working a hundred hours a week for your startup is appealing. And mm -hmm. when you're, you know, 40 or 50, the idea of using your experience that you've um, acquired to help a bunch of startups rather than one startup is appealing. And that's why you become a VC and you advise, you know, as many startups as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's normal to a degree, but if you're, but that said, if you're, you know, if what you really want to do at 50 with your experience is start your own startup, like anyone who looks at you and says, well, you can't do that because you're not 25 is an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> cool. 
Uh, thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Fun conversation. Yeah. yeah.